0: Thank you and good evening. Um, It is a privilege to be here with the candidates and uh, this event that's put together with the uh, Franklin Together Reentry Coalition. Um, It's always good to participate in something like this so the community can uh, directly engage and educate themselves with the candidates. So thank you for coming this evening. Uh, We're going to start uh, with an icebreaker question before we came in. we picked names out of the hat to see who would go first. And Ms. Shank is going to uh, start us out with the iceberg question. So the question is, uh, what is the best book you have read in the last 12 months and why?
1: So in the last 12 months, well, in the last six months, uh, reading is one of my favorite pastimes. But I have to admit, since I've announced uh, I have not done a whole lot of reading, That's typically something I enjoyed before going to bed, and I'm sure we both can relate to when our head hits the pillow, it would be hard to stay awake for a book. But uh, in the last 12 months, um, I read The Wright Brothers by David McCullough, and that was actually a reread for me. And what prompted me to read the book is I've heard David McCullough speak. He's my father's favorite author. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning author um, two times and a historian. So I kind of waited, it. has been a standard Christmas gift for me to give my father is his latest book, and so I waited for a topic that really caught my interest, and what uh, made me enjoy the book so much was actually learning more about two gentlemen that I knew a little bit about, but their sister, she's kind of the unsung hero of this family, and she, um, you know, her brothers were shy, she was outgoing, and it sounds like she was in there helping them with their speeches, making sure they were dressing appropriately for appearances, Um, She gave up teaching to travel when her brothers agreed to pay her her uh, teacher's salary of $6 um, a week uh, to travel with them, and ultimately ended up being a champion for the women's right to vote, and uh, in Europe, it was as well known as her brothers, so I just thought it was she was not only a powerful woman, but kind of a humorous uh, person to read about, and that's that's the book that made the most impression upon me in the last 12 months.
0: Thank you. Um, Mr. Brink?
2: Yeah, in the last twelve months, uh, it was kind of easy for me to narrow it because it is one book. Because of getting ready for this, as uh, Mary Beth said, uh, you don't have a lot of time to re- sit back and read. And if you do, you probably fall asleep. Uh, so, and it was a, I will call it semi reread. I knew about it from school, but I never read it. And it's it's a little corny, but it actually it went through my daughter. Um, call of the Wild is what I read. And, and the reason I read that was I was in her class and I saw the book in her class. And I was like, well, I remember hearing about listening to that and hearing people talk about it in school during class. And, you know, it was an interesting story. And a lot of times uh, I was able to pick up a lot of stuff just by listening. So it's almost like I read the book, even though I didn't read the book in class or read every, let's put this way, every paragraph. Um, so I went ahead and suggested to her that she bring it home to read. Over and over and over and again, and the book never came home. So then at Christmas time, I went ahead and bought it for her and gave it to her and said, "Please read this. I think it's a cool book." And again, she she started a couple times, didn't get there. So I then took it out of her room and took it out to the in, in the living room and just started reading it each night after her and my wife had went to bed. And it is a great book. Uh, I like I said, it was easy to narrow down because I had one. And it is a great story of both uh, struggle and survival uh, of the main character book. And that is why I read that book. And it was a, it was a good read. It was just for fun. Thanks.
0: OK, um, thank you for that. We're going to move along here and to um, get into the topics. But before we do that, we're going to give each candidate about two minutes uh, for an opening statement. And uh, we'll start with Ms. Shink.
1: Well, thank you to the Reentry Coalition for hosting this evening. Um, it's an important part of Reentry Month. And uh, as I was looking through the public opinion this morning, I would commend to your attention uh, an article that was in the powerful experience students observed treatment court. Uh, It's a great, uh, thoughtful article in the public opinion and perfect for re-entry month and talks about uh, students in the eastern part of the state, actually have some family there in Abington School District, who are participating in observing uh, mental health treatment courts and the impact that that had on them, how uh, willing that participants were to share their experiences and and what an impact that's leaving on the community and these kids. So uh, a good article by the public opinion. And I'll just... I think you've gotten a brief bio on me. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you all for spending uh, an evening. That's the precursor to a holiday, and, and I'm sure it's heartening to both of us that that you're interested um, in what we have to say this evening. So thank you. Great.
2: Uh, thank you for coming. Uh, based on the weather report, the this is the last nice day for probably the next four or five days. So. very impressive that we got this many folks here. Uh, I thank you for you know, setting up this venue for us to be able to speak in and I see a lot of familiar faces and I appreciate that and as I normally do and anybody that's seen me in court my opening statements I usually try to make nice quick and to the point because the jury doesn't come (laughs) to hear me they come to listen to the evidence so uh, let's get this going thank you
0: All right, so we'll start with our first topic, uh, which is incarceration incarceration rates, and what I will do is I'll read a uh, short paragraph before we ask the questions of the candidates. Um, so going into this uh, topic one, the United States incarcerates more people than any other country in the world. We account for 5% of the world population and yet 25% of people incarcerated are in the United States. Our rates of incarceration have increased over 500% in the last 30 years. We spend five times more to keep a person in a Pennsylvania prison for one year than we do to educate a student in the public school system. Those numbers indicate we have a broken criminal justice system. Um, Ms. Shank is first. And the question is, what do you think about the growing prison population? Uh, What response should society have to a prison overcrowding?
1: Well, as a member of this community, it's a concern. I want my community to be safe, but I'm also aware of the cost to taxpayers. Um, As the county uh, solicitor, I'm, I'm definitely aware of the costs of overcrowding in our prisons and so I think we need to balance concerns and attempt to reach the best result and get in the right place. Um, I think society needs to understand that people in our local, local jails are our neighbors and we want them back in the community and to the extent that they have drug and alcohol problems or mental health issues, we need to look at addressing the core issue. I want my neighbor returning as someone who's not likely going to enter into jail again as someone who's going to be a productive member of society, a taxpayer, and who is receiving or has received treatment for these issues. So I think it makes sense for us to utilize whatever programs are available to turn people into productive members of society, um, uh, to turn them into taxpayers, um, and to rehabilitated members of of our society. I think that's a win for our community, uh, for our jails, and our taxes. When someone's in jail, that's being funded by this county. Uh, so if we can direct them into treatment and open them into those opportunities, state and federal funds become available. So as a taxpayer, I think that's another key key point in um, the prison uh, overcrowding.
0: Thank you. Um, would you like me to read the question again, Mr. Brink? No, I don't I, okay.
2: I, I question. Go ahead. Um, I... I, I agree that it is a concern, uh, the current population. However, a judge, when sentencing an individual, and it is individualized sentencing when an individual comes before you as a judge, cannot. that is what the current prison population is, is not a factor that a judge can take into consideration. Uh, Judges do not arbitrarily just sentence an individual to prison. They receive information regarding the individual standing in front of them, and they have to specifically figure out with that individual what is the appropriate sentence for them versus a policy decision regarding, for example, prison overcrowding. Title 42 sets out the options that a judge has upon a conviction. Judges' options are probation, guilt without further punishment, partial confinement, which is our local jails, total confinement, which is state prison, a fine, county intermediate punishment, and state intermediate punishment. Title 42 also sets forth the general principle that a court shall impose a sentence of confinement that is consistent with the protection of the public, the gravity of the offense, and also the rehabilitative needs of the defendant. In doing so, a judge would look at the sentencing guidelines. The Pennsylvania State Commission on Sentencing puts out guidelines as far as what people should be sentenced to based on their prior record score and the offense gravity score score for the offense of which they were convicted of. There's ranges that are on those sentencing guidelines in numbers of months. They could be anywhere from, for example, RS to 1. RS means restorative sanctions. Restorative sanctions all the way up to one month as what the minimum sentence could potentially be for that individual. Is that a sentence in which someone normally goes to our jail? Absolutely not. But do we, re- are on the guidelines, do we have guidelines that say, for example, 12 to 18 months? Yes, that is a typical guideline range for a second DUI offense in the highest level, of, the highest tier, for a person with a prior record score of zero. So that does create a, situation where someone's going to be serving jail sentence due to mandatory minimum sentences so the response to prison overcrowding proper treatment in the prison i see folks here that i know from the jail i've been out to the jail countless times working and knowing that they're trying to get folks connected up with the right treatment the biggest thing with the treatment is the proper handoff once the folks leave the jail and don't just get dropped from services we've learned that from treatment court that that is essential, the, the proper warm handoff to get them to the right treatment uh, that they need. If you don't have that, there is high likelihood that they will fail. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Um, and seeing in this vein, the next question is, what is your vision for the future of our judicial, judicial system? Uh, what are the biggest changes you think we need to make to our justice system?
1: So in the first question, which is asking the response of society, this in contrast is I think looking to us more as potential judges uh, to respond and and what the biggest changes we think are needed to the justice system. I mean, my my message is pretty simple. I think that we need uh, a vision to put people on the path for success, to not commit crime, and to make sure our justice system supports um, safety in our communities. Uh, A vision that I'd like to see is that judges be given a little bit more discretion uh, to determine what collateral consequences are appropriate. Uh, I think a judge is in the best position to determine these types of issues based upon the facts that are presented and in front of them. Uh, For example, a collateral consequence may be an 18-year-old mother uh, or an 18-year-old maybe commits retail theft. And a collateral consequence at some point might be that she can't go on a field trip um, for her daughter, because she can't pass the criminal background check. So you know we're within the confinements of, of what the law dictates, but I think that there are ways that, um, and these are legislative decisions, not decisions for a judge to make, but that's a, that's a vision as I was pondering this uh, question uh, that I think would be um, appropriate and I'd like to see.
0: Thank you. Uh, Mr. Brink?
2: Thank you. Uh, regarding the biggest change to the justice system, I thought of a couple different things obviously the justice system needs to be effective basically provide effective and efficient administration of justice um it's an absolute necessity for all court systems and one of our main issues and it's you know it is to getting people treatment and the proper treatment that they need is the backlog that we have within our court system there are a lot of cases and the numbers are not going down uh, and it is justice delayed is justice denied, and it's for all sides. For the defendant, I, I worked as a public defender for 13 years. I know I've been out to the jail. I've talked to folks out there regarding what they, you know, what they potentially need, what they don't need to be successful when they get out. Now, there is a disconnect, just so everybody is aware. Just because an attorney thinks that a defendant needs something doesn't mean that that's what they want. And public defenders are put in a bind because most defendants, uh, I'm not saying all, but most, want the least restrictions on them as far as their sentence as possible. So if a defendant tells somebody, uh, tells their attorney, I have this drug and alcohol issue, but I don't want to be under any evaluation, I don't want to have to go through treatment because I don't think I need it, and the prosecutor doesn't know and the court doesn't know, that will never be addressed. That will never be addressed. And the defendant does have some burden in all of this. Now, all the we have wonderful people that try and put all of the resources available. The connection of resources that this county tries to do is phenomenal. But everybody has to be a part in getting those resources, including the defendant. And... You know, it's just you know the judges see a snapshot of the person. Usually, they, they will receive a you know if someone's getting in trouble and pre, you know, through probation or whatever else, they'll see a snapshot paperwork, but they don't see them all the time. They see them in court quickly. Uh, you, you don't necessarily know what's going on with them all the time, but we need to get stuff done. We need to have the good work that is being done at our jail. Uh, folks and get them in the right programs. Now, the big issue with that, though, is pre-sentenced folks at the jail are not necessarily always amenable to the treatment that's being offered to them. Thank you.
0: Thank thank you to both of you. Uh, We'll move on to topic two, which is uh, disproportionate minority incarceration. And I'll just remind you again, I'm going to read something before we move into the questions. According to a report published in 2018 by the American Civil Liberties Union, there is an over-representation of minorities in Pennsylvania's prisons. For example, black people, which is a term that was used in this report, account for 47% of incarcerated individuals, while there is only 10% in the adult state population in 2014, the Latino imprisonment rate in Pennsylvania was second highest in the country and more than three times that of white people. In 2016, Latinos accounted for 10% of the Pennsylvania prison population, but only 6% of Pennsylvania's adult population. There is also an overrepresentation of minorities in Franklin County Jail. The 2010 census indicated that Franklin County had a minority population of black and Latino people of about 6%, yet there are about 24% of the inmates in the jail reported being a minority. Our first question under to this topic is, how will you work to ensure equality for people of all backgrounds in your courtroom? And uh, Ms. Shink is first. Oh, I'm sorry, excuse me. Uh, Mr. Brink is first. Okay.
2: Thank you. Uh, th- I kind of find this to be a what I believe is an easy question uh, for a judge, because justice is blind and everybody is to be treated equally um, in the courtroom, which is the most fundamental, fundamental element of justice. Uh, judicial Rule 2.2 2 says that a judge shall uphold and apply the law and perform all duties fairly and impartially. Rule two point three says that a judge shall perform duties without bias or prejudice. Any action that the judge takes shall not have that. As a judge, you are the leader in the room, in the courtroom, and you, how you present yourself, should then, you know, folks in your courtroom, you should expect the same out of them, which includes staff in there, any attorneys that come in there, and that we do not, you know, disparage. And what it talks about is the specific. Issues of race, sex, gender, religion, national origin, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, all those groups. It doesn't matter. Everybody that comes into the courtroom should treat, be treated exactly the same and fair. Any of those uh, descriptors for them, it has no bearing on what a judge should be dis- determining. They should just treat everybody the same. I don't care if you're rich, I don't care if you're poor, I don't care if you're white, black, Hispanic. I've represented all of them, except for, I guess, technically not the rich um, as a public defender. But um, you you treat everybody the same. Everybody deserves the same respect. They're all human. Treat them as such. Thank you.
0: Ms.
1: Shea? I would agree wholeheartedly with Mr. Brink's very fine answer. A fundamental principle is that You would treat everyone, I would treat everyone in my courtroom with fairness and respect. And Rule 2.6 in the Code of Judicial Conduct is that a judge shall ensure the right of everyone to be heard in in his or her courtroom. And so I would work very hard to make sure that there is no unconscious bias. As judges, we are human beings. I can go back to a time when I served on an arbitration panel, and uh, there was uh, a litigant that appeared before the panel, And, uh, you know, I had to repeat that in my mind a few times because this person was very disrespectful, very rude to the opposing uh, party. This was actually counsel, um, very uh, difficult uh, in dealing with a pro se. It was clear trying to take some advantage of that situation. And so uh, I did have to remind myself and and ultimately had to make a decision in favor of a party that wasn't uh, the most appetizing in court. But... Uh, There has to be an unfailing commitment uh, to make sure that that there is no bias in a courtroom, uh, conscious or unconscious. And uh, I think it goes without saying, but this is responsive to the question. I promised I would hear cases without regard to um, race, socioeconomic status, gender, and um, that's the role of a judge, and we have no choice but to have a different response than that.
0: Thank you. The second question, if you observed a party in your courtroom being poorly represented by an unprepared or ineffective lawyer, how would you handle the situation?
2: Now, in reading that question, there's a couple of jumps in, leaps in logic to some degree. To find an attorney ineffective, there's a legal standard for that. A judge sitting on the bench watching what an attorney is currently doing doesn't have all the facts before them to determine whether or not they're being uh, ineffective. Uh, You see stuff in court. Often I've seen stuff in court where you sit there and you're watching. I know other staff that that works in the court sits there and they're like, what is that attorney doing? Where where are they going with this? Uh, But you don't know what that attorney knows in their head. You don't know what they know from what other witnesses they've talked to. To talking to their defend to the defendant, so it it would it would be completely inappropriate for a judge to before hearing all of the facts that are to come before the court as presented by both sides to prejudge and then also insert themselves um, before all the evidence is submitted. Uh, judges are not advocates; they're not supposed to get in there and say, "Well, you should be asking this question. You should be asking this question for either side." That is what the attorney's jobs are on both sides. And if there is a ultimate situation where a attorney's performance is falling below what expectations are, you know, my expectation for myself is, and from day one, from when I got out of law school, I will never go into a courtroom unprepared and not ready to answer any question that the judge puts to me. Um, that's what I would expect for the attorneys that would come before me. Be ready, be prepared. If they fall below that, depending on ultimately where, you know, what ultimately after the evidence is done, there may be a discussion with that attorney. If we, if I feel that there is a something, you know, going wrong, you know, is there an issue, you know, what was going on? I, I had a quick example. I had a trial in which I had a self-defense argument. I talked to a witness right before I called the witness out in the hall, and I said, who threw the first punch? Said the victim did. All right, put him up on the stand. Who threw the first punch? Your client did. You have no idea what's going to come out of their mouth. I had completely blindsided, and the judge probably thought, what is Brink doing today? So you never know, so you got to wait until you hear everything and see everything, because there are different factors that weigh in on that. Thank
0: you. Richard?
1: A judge must always avoid the appearance of impropriety, and as Mr. Frank indicated, a judge is to be a neutral fact finder. Uh, they can't cross the line from that obligation, and so a judge does have the duty to hear the case in its entirety, and and that leaves, you know, few options to insert ourselves in in the midst of of, of a trial. Um, I, I think ultimately. Uh, A judge has a few things that they can do uh, to be responsive to this question. Uh, They certainly can't advocate for either party, but they can uh, advise parties of their appeal rights, and that's something that needs to happen in every case. Um, I think if there would be um, an extreme example, a judge has an obligation to report to the disciplinary board. Um, And the only other situation I could think of is there is, Court appointments that are made in in our court system. And so there is certainly some opportunity for judges if they feel that an attorney is simply not preparing and they're providing ineffective assistance of counsel to folks, they can ensure that those attorneys are not on that list. And and to that extent, I think that that's where uh, there can be an opportunity. I would also agree once the proceeding is over, uh, there there may be an appropriate time to pull an attorney aside and find out what's going on or, or, or to mentor a bit, but it is, it is a good question. I understand the question, but there are definitely limitations there. Thank you. We're going to move on to
0: topic three, which is bail reform. Bail reform is, um, or bail in general, is a hot topic. Uh, there are states such as New Jersey who have made radical reforms to bail processes. Starting last year, New Jersey all but eliminated cash bail, moving instead to a system where judges can order defendants jailed based in part on a risk assessment that weighs the suspect's criminal history and the charges they face. In Pennsylvania, bail is determined using a list of factors that are considered when setting a cash bail amount. Risk assessments are not mandatory. A recent spot survey of bail amounts for individuals in the Franklin County Jail indicated an average bail of $150,000, and a median bail amount of $75,000. The median household income in Franklin County is approximately $53,000 a year, which makes the bail amounts set out of reach for the average person. So I believe Ms. shank is first for this question. Um, The first question is, do you support lower bail amounts that do not disproportionately incarcerate people living in poverty?
1: As candidates, we have canons that we must follow uh, when answering questions. And sometimes that's not very satisfactory when we're asked questions and we have an audience that wants to hear a particular answer. Uh, But I believe that this question, um, very good and well-intentioned, I believe I'm limited in how I can respond to that. I can't speak to um, or cross the line in any way of how I might rule in a particular case. Uh, What I will say is one of the factors in determining bail is the ability to pay. And I would take into consideration um, when someone's before me any non-monetary options, uh, such as a pretrial release program. Thank you. Mr. Brent.
2: Thank you. Uh, I agree wholeheartedly that we cannot speak as to any specific situation. Uh, I would, in answering this, say that I support appropriate bail being set based on a case-by-case basis analysis of the factors set forth by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court in Rule 523. Now, in those factors, they list a lot of things. Uh, What is the likelihood of conviction? Uh, What where, how long has the person lived in the county? How long have they lived there? Whether they have a mental health diagnosis, whether they have drug and alcohol addiction, whether they have are a flight risk, have had a warrant issued for them in the past, what is their prior record score? A lot of information goes into a bail determination. Uh, and the bail determination first, for the most part, the people that end up at the jail is made by our, our magisterial district judges, not actually by the Court of Common Pleas judges. So they're the ones that hear firsthand. Now, albeit, they don't have, you know, usually the person's just having been arrested, so it's probably not if they're having a uh, bad day, let's put it that way. And, you know, it it all depends on how they approach the judge. Sometimes they say the wrong thing and the bail gets set higher. We, and the one thing that we do have where we live here is the line that splits us in Maryland. Uh, Leaving the jurisdiction and going to another jurisdiction also results in higher bail because if we have to bring that person back here there's proceedings extradition proceedings that we have to go through so the bail factors are what we need to look at uh, in setting an appropriate bail and you know regarding the 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 facts that were set out regarding how what a bail is and how bail works the entire bail amount is not posted by the individual usually a bail bondsman is used And some bails go as low as 2% to begin, you know, allowing a person to post or family to post in order to get out of jail. Uh, So on a $75,000 bail, it could be as little as $1,500 and then they work with payments. Now, am I I saying that's easy to post? Not always. Absolutely not. I would make arguments all the time in court. You know what? You could put $500 on my client or you could put a million dollars. It doesn't matter. It's the same they don't have $500. So that can be a scenario uh, that that is out there. But following the bail factors, knowing what the person is presenting to you, and risk assessments are fine to take into consideration. Uh, Absolutely. The comment to the bail rule specifically says it's not prohibited. However, it says that bail cannot be considered solely on a risk assessment. The comment. To the rules, specifically say that in Rule 523.
0: Thank you. Thank you to both of you. Uh, the second question, we'll start out with Michigan first. Do you support the use of risk assessments in addition to bail considerations to determine bail amounts?
1: A simple answer here. I would welcome as much information and input as is available to me when, uh, as a judge, when I'm making a decision at a bail hearing. Mr. Brink.
2: Yeah, I kind of went. I jumped the gun and went into it a little bit. Yeah, uh, risk assessments can be used as a tool to determine appropriate bail. And the rule specifically says that the bail authority shall consider all available information relevant to the defendant's appearance. That's what you're trying to make sure: is the defendant going to appear or not appear? If they're going to appear and a high risk of appearing at court, that's a good thing, and in, indicates potentially lower bail. And also compliance or non-compliance with bail conditions. So if you're going to be telling somebody in a domestic violence situation, no contact, whether you think that no contact is going to work or not, that's a, that's a sticky situation for a judge. You don't want to make the decision that you have allowed, you know, okay, I'm not setting a secured bail on you. I'm saying no contact. That means there's a piece of paper stopping this individual from going back and having contact with, you know, a potential person that they assaulted. That is a worry. Now, there are pretrial services such as electronic monitoring, GPS monitoring that can be utilized, and those are obviously considerations that all judges should take into consideration.
0: Thank you. Topic four is courtroom reform. Many states are working on changes to the court system due to recognizing the unfairness of a system that does not offer the same rights to the living in poverty. There are many issues that range from bail amounts to fines and court costs. Many believe that the judicial system is not fair and equitable. I believe Mr. Brink goes first. Um, the question. first question is how do you define injustice what do you perceive as the greatest obstacle to justice, if any?
2: So I looked up injustice all over the Internet. What does that, uh, what does that mean? And there's a whole lot of, and apparently there's a movie that's injustice, and that was all over the place. I was unaware. Um, and what unfairness or undeserved outcome is injustice uh, or lack of justice. That is, that's kind of what's the common definition out there. And yeah, when something has happened within the system that was not fair for some one reason or another, that can lead to injustice and unfair results. So what do I perceive as the greatest obstacle to justice? And this is, I thought and thought and thought, and people. People are the biggest obstacle to injustice because everybody's an individual. Everybody brings different set of factors to the table. So when I say people, I mean the judges, I mean attorneys, I mean parties, support staff, all of us involved in the criminal justice system, the folks that help. All of us can, unfortunately, unwillingly, un, you know, un, even unbeknownst, contribute potentially to someone not having justice, and that that's that's sad to say because I know, especially the folks in Franklin County, they work hard, they try and do the right thing. But it can simply be the wrong thing being said and overheard by somebody that makes that make that person think that this isn't a fair system. Some you know, somebody makes a joke uh, in in the hallway of the courtroom and a defendant's family member overhears it. That you know, they don't like that. Uh, one per- I mean, for example, a perceived injustice is most folks think that public defenders are receiving some form of compensation to sell them out on a plea deal that's a first that's a perception they don't think we're real they don't think that they're real attorneys in the public defender's office i was told after being an attorney for 15 years i should think about going to law school uh, so there are great obstacles to you know remedying uh what people think and you know and it's sad because we need to we it is a noble profession we're trying to do the right thing and get the right result. That's what everybody's attempting to do. And I I just, everybody involved can, you know, and then you have different, everybody brings their set of uh, skill, their skill set to the table and different levels of skill set to the table. And that is always available. You know, are all attorneys created equal? The answer is no. Do some have better skills in one area than the other? Absolutely. I'm, I'm not. I'm not a patent attorney for a reason. I wouldn't be good at it. That's not my thing. So, unfortunately, the answer is people.
1: Well, I guess we were googling in the same places because uh, injustice is what I saw as a lack of fairness, which I certainly agree with that. And the absence of justice, I can also relate to your story when I did. Uh, children and youth uh, court appointments one day after doing the best I could for someone who just simply was not following the law, uh, he told me that he was going to hire a real attorney. So that felt felt good. But I I think ultimately, um, you know, lack of awareness of legal rights and options is one of the greatest obstacles uh, to justice. And that's why I believe firmly uh, that our profession is an important one. And the representation of folks um, and and making sure they understand their rights and options is what we're in the business of doing. And uh, as a secondary component to that, it's it's education to the point that someone hasn't reached the step where they've engaged counsel, education uh, of understanding to the extent we can get out out and educate as to legal rights and options. I think that we're providing service to folks and and helping them uh, overcome obstacles to justice.
0: Thank you. Second question under this court reform topic is, how do you feel about changing court rules to transfer more of the routine and less serious matters to court commissioners and district court judges?
2: Thank you. you. Uh, I, I believe that whoever thought of writing this question was thinking of the Maryland system, because we do not have court commissioners, nor do we have district court judges. Uh, We have magisterial district judges, and there is a rule that specifically allows magisterial district judges to take pleas, if authorized by the president judge, to misdemeanor three charges or less. Um, I was actually on the criminal rules committee um, that was chaired by Judge Myers when this topic was discussed probably five or six years ago. Uh, There was other private defense attorneys there. The district attorney was there. And it was determined at that point in time that there were not enough cases to capture to allow that to allow that to happen. We weren't going to take that much of a strain off of the uh, criminal justice system. Now, be that that being said, is it something that could be looked at? Absolutely. I mean, we looked at it five years ago. doesn't mean that it could not be looked at again. The biggest thing that we need to, con- to remember regarding that, however, is, that rule specifically says the highest offense can be a misdemeanor three to start with. So if you have a misdemeanor two or higher, which as the numbers go up, it gets worse. Uh, those offenses cannot, you can't dismiss a misdemeanor two and then say we're going to do a misdemeanor three before a magisterial district judge. So that does not happen. So the types of offenses this would really impact would probably be possession of drug paraphernalia, small amount of marijuana, disorderly conduct lower level thefts but then it's also going to require training of magisterial district judges that attempt to do a good job but of the seven that we have we only have two of them that are attorneys the other five are not so there will be extensive training to make sure that they understand what is necessary in accepting a guilty plea to a misdemeanor thank you
1: so I also was a little confused by the terminology, and, and part of my answer was I'm not sure how we're defining what a court commissioner or district court judge is not practicing in Maryland. Um, I didn't realize that could be the possible confusion. I would generally say that I would support a concept that could improve efficiency um, and allow for more timely hearing of matters, but it would be critical to know the qualifications and background um, of the person that would be serving in that role. Um, The work that I do in my background would not give me a seat at the table that Mr. Brink um, has had in in having those determinations, so I would defer. It sounds like that's been looked at thoughtfully, and and that decision was appropriate. Um, So, kind of considering more in my world where this has been a good thing, um, we sometimes utilize, um, and I wouldn't characterize this for less serious or or, um, more routine matters, but, for example, in a state litigation, one point I was appointed to be an auditor for a complex estate matter, and what that did was ultimately allow me to conduct the hearing to do the findings of fact, conclusions of the law, and then our trial judge served as the reviewer of that and reviewed any objections that the attorneys might make, and so that that created efficiencies. So, you know, I like the concept, as long as we have, um, you know, properly qualified folks serving in that role that you know that's certainly uh, possible um, we've seen that also with juvenile masters divorce support masters all attorneys with proper qualifications and training so as a broad concept uh, to the extent we can use something that allows our judges to more efficiently hear cases and timely hear cases I would be in support of that
0: thank you uh, the next question to this topic Do you believe that all citizens have adequate access to legal help and the legal system? If not, what can be done to provide wider and better access? Would you support the need for more funding for legal aid services?
2: I believe that citizens do have adequate uh, access to legal help in the legal system. Obviously, being in the public defender's office, I helped establish Uh, before I became the chief public defender, I worked with the chief public defender and and established what the uh, financial criteria for someone to be represented by a public defender is. And there are financial criteria, and we divided it up um, in the three categories based on when a, uh, depending on what type of an offense, because the more serious of an offense, the more money a private attorney is going to charge an individual. So, and we, we recognize that. So we have we use the federal poverty guidelines use the federal poverty guidelines and put a multiplier to that based on the type of offense. and there also is even if the public defender's office says no, there is judicial appeal of that they can file an appeal with the court administrator's office asking for an attorney um, to be appointed to them otherwise. there is also the judges ultimately have the power to appoint anyway they go ahead I mean I've been, I've walked in the courtroom, Mr. Brink, there you are, meet your new client. That can happen. Uh, That, and, and it's very understandable. Judges would like, you know, make sure that people's rights are protected. And uh, it's, it's not a bad thing. And it makes, quite honestly, you know, versus having the pro se litigant up there fumbling through everything, it makes it easier on the judge to have an attorney at least be able to narrow the appropriate issues versus kind of get a shotgun approach of you don't know what issues coming at you. Uh, You know, when we had issues, we would have people come to our window that were not in the criminal field, that were in need of potential legal services. Uh, You know, we would provide them with that information and being able to go there. I know also our bar has a great reputation for people doing pro bono work to try and help folks out. One great example is there's a gentleman in treatment court who I've known since 2006. I met him early on. He was, he's was he been up to state prison and back, and he is doing phenomenal now. It finally kicked into him. But he has a daughter, and he has an issue, that a custody issue that needs to be dealt with. A local attorney to sell. decided to handle that case pro bono, and it was wonderful for him because he would have struggled through the entire process without it. So... Uh, I applaud them. They always would send out sign-up sheets, and I could never sign up because I'm already was always kind of doing it already. Thank you.
1: I believe we can always strive to make sure that um, there's better and wider access to the legal system. I think we're doing a really good job in Franklin County. Uh, my background, as I've stated, is in the the civil and orphans court division, so I can speak speak to that. Um, but I do believe the outcome is always best. When a party is represented, uh, ensures, hopefully, that the best and the correct legal arguments are being made, uh, that the pertinent facts are being set forth for the judge, uh, that compliant pleadings are being filed, um, and most importantly, that there is an assessment by someone who understands the law and as the facts apply to determine whether there should be any type of settlement discussions going on. Um, I think we're very fortunate. So we're very fortunate here in Franklin County. Um, I certainly believe in the work that lawyers do in our profession, uh, but I also really believe in the work that our local attorneys are doing. And we're blessed with not only one, but two uh, legal services. And uh, at times in my past where I've talked with folks about their options, uh, sometimes they make a comment a little bit like we've experienced. Um, well, you know, I think I'd get a better attorney if I if I would get a private attorney, And I can assure you that going up against the attorneys at Legal Services in Mid-Penn, they're fine folks who know the law and are very respected by our court system. So it's something to be very proud of, as Mr. Brink indicated. We're known throughout the state for our pro bono work. Uh, The pro bono coordinator for the Pennsylvania Bar Association uh, never misses our annual luncheon. And uh, there's just been a lot of work done there. So in addition to those um, two entities, we have... Private attorneys that are committed to doing pro bono work, either of their choosing, that they really never talk about, um, or through uh, legal services in MidPen as, as is referred. So, I think we're doing well um, to the extent that we do have pro se litigants that are appearing. That's certainly always an opportunity. If, unless they're choosing that, uh, that's certainly an, always an opportunity that we can strive for to ensure uh, even more representation.
0: Thank you, both of you, um, for for those comments. Uh, We're going to move to topic five at this time, um, something that is uh, on everyone's mind, which is substance abuse. An estimated 33% of those incarcerated in Franklin County Jail have been charged with the DUI. This is according to the reports provided by the jail to the Franklin County Prison Board. Add in those with drug charges, and it's clear that substance abuse is a huge issue for the jail population. Um, the first question for Ms. Shank, who would start this round? How do you think the criminal justice system can best address substance abuse issues?
1: Well, I'm gonna go back to the reminder that we can't cross the line to indicate how we would rule in a specific case, and you know, we do have the law that we must follow but at a broader level ultimately we do want to treat people so that they can return to our community um, and be productive members and it should be a goal to decrease rates of recidivism so to the extent that we can address that and look at options we need to do that. We need to consider the role of specialty courts and the role of uh, diversionary programs and I think we're doing a good job of that in Franklin County um, one of the uh, programs is the Good Wolf Treatment Court. I believe Mr. Brink has done some really fine work with that, and uh, that's allowing qualifying participants to receive appropriate levels of treatment for their addiction uh, with the goal of rehabilitation. So I think we always need to be looking at ways that we can treat the underlying issues, whether it's mental health, substance abuse, so that um, we really are treating the person always making sure, number one, our community is safe, but to the extent that, that that's the case, that we're treating folks so that they're not, uh, they're coming back into society, coming into our community and neighborhoods, and um, back in the workforce, being productive members, and um, you know, not ending up back in our county jail. Mr. Bray?
2: So I, I believe our criminal justice system does address substance abuse issues, and I and I think they're doing what they're supposed to. And there has actually been a little bit of a mindset switch. Uh, whenever someone has a DUI, they are required to do what's called a court reporting network evaluation, which deals with, you know, their drug or alcohol use and recommends whether or not they need a full drug and alcohol evaluation, comprehensive assessment, and then follow any treatment. Uh, Drug and alcohol evaluations are sometimes triggered by CRN evaluations. They are needed in all DUIs and also intermediate punishment sentences. Now, the, where I say the switch in mindset is, quite honestly, it's been through treatment court that I will tell you, judge, district attorney, um, primarily them, and even you know, even myself before I moved over to the district attorney's office what goes into substance abuse and alcohol abuse and what you should be expecting. Uh, The expectation of people messing up and it's, you know, it's going to happen. And the expectation that those experts in the drug and alcohol field, they know what they're doing. They're the experts and we need to defer to it. So often in cases we have Family members come up to us on both sides that I've been on and say, so-and-so, my son, needs to be in inpatient treatment. Okay, that's great. Let's have them evaluated. If they're evaluated and deemed not to be in need of inpatient treatment, but instead intensive outpatient treatment, that is the appropriate level of care that is needed for that individual. Now, I will tell you, the district attorney fought that for a long time because Sometimes you just think, you know, it's like this person's got this, this, and this. This is all going wrong. We, we need to do something better. There's no way that evaluation can be correct. We, the mindset has changed. We trust what the drug and alcohol evaluators are saying. Now, what is the reason for some of the distrust in that? You have an individual show up in court before the judge with a .25 BAC, with a drug and alcohol evaluation saying that they don't, they're don't, they in need of no treatment. That doesn't make any sense. Now, the one thing that we have to watch out about those evaluations is they are self-reporting. If they don't tell the evaluator and they're not truthful with the evaluator, they're not always accurate, but we attempt to get everything accurate as best we can, and we know that the people in the field know what they're doing. And the Goodwill Treatment Court has really taught us, you know, You're able to work with the folks as best as possible and, you know, just be honest with what you need. Please tell us if you need help, just tell us. Uh, That is the number one thing that I have learned through there is honesty. We will then get you the help that you need. But I've also listened to experts in this that have beaten, you know, people in long-term recovery. Tim Ryan, for example. Treatment court is a privilege. There has to be an end at some point in time if you will not comply. And unfortunately, the only option at that point in time is incarceration.
0: Thank you. Next question under the uh, topic of substance abuse. Um, Your thoughts on the war on drugs, is it effective, or do you find that it has led to mass incarceration of drug addicts and low-level drug offenders?
1: Well, with all due respect, this is not a four-minute question. Um, I think ultimately this is a question for a legislator. Uh, My personal feelings as a judge couldn't determine how I would rule uh, from the bench on this. Uh, What I will say is I think that the war on drugs uh, has focused on punishment, and that's half of the story, and the other half is addressing issues um, where appropriate uh, with rehabilitation. And again, I would use the example of the Good Wolf Treatment Court as addressing um, some unintended consequences of the war on drugs. Um, I think some statistics that that I read about our Good Wolf Treatment Court, 75% of grads remain arrest free for two years. It's a cost savings to our county. So if we can keep our community safe and rehabilitate folks and return abusers back to society, uh, I think we're addressing the problem in a good way. But I do also agree there is an end to the line. And so this isn't always the option. And there does come a time when perhaps the right um, and appropriate response is incarceration. But that would certainly be on on a case-by-case basis. Mr. Brink?
2: Yeah, this has been talked about a lot, uh, specifically regarding treatment court and just in the district attorney's office. Because you have the supply side, which our drug task force deals with all the time, but the supply is going to continue to come in. It's coming in from other countries, and it, it, it's, it's going to be nonstop. And we've tried fighting it from the supply side forever, and that, that alone will not work. So uh, education and treatment, such as the Good Wolf Treatment Court, or any other form of treatment, affecting the demand side making people not want the drug to begin with. That is what, you know, that's a new focus, so we attack it from both fronts. Uh, you know, one thing that I think about with this is, you know, when tobacco and smoking, in my opinion, I look around, there's a less, much less young folks that smoke than what used to. I remember my parents smoked, and, you know, just it just seemed like everybody did, but then, you know, the bad, you know, the information got out there. And people stop doing that, start, you know, to some degree, stop harming themselves as much. People do still smoke, but it just seems like it's less. But there was also restrictions. Don't smoke, you know, different facilities. You know, I, I was not part of it, but I heard that you used to walk in the courthouse and there was a cloud of smoke in the courthouse. I cannot imagine that. That would have been, would have been horrible for me. Um, so there is you know, the education component of it. And you got to get to the kids when they're young to make an impression upon them. Uh, one of the great benefits of doing this campaign and just you know has been going to different stuff and being able to bring my daughter to those uh, the, the different events. And one of those events was a vigil, overdose vigil, um, dur- during Overdose Awareness Month, and seeing the people go up there that are from normal families that their kids were good kids uh, that unfortunately made a bad decision and you know let heroin into their life and that ultimately ended their life uh that does happen to good people and the parents bang their heads against the wall wondering what they can do to fix it they try and put every resource out there they, we can't shield our kids from this we need to let them know the dangers of this put it out there and let them, you know, let them see it. It is something to be fearful of. And uh, I think if we attack from both sides, I think we're making strides. We're not, we're not even close to declaring victory, but strides are being made, and we're going in the right direction.
0: Last question under this topic of substance abuse. Um, how do you each feel about the diversionary programs for development of life skills for offenders in lieu of charges or incarceration?
1: I think two different questions are being asked here. To the extent it's addressing charges, that's at the total discretion of the district attorney or the state attorney, so that's that's not for me to answer. But in terms of making a decision on incarceration, um, if the needs of society, the offender, and the victims can be met, Absolutely, I would be supportive uh, to the extent that a diversionary program can meet these needs.
2: I like diversionary programs uh, as long as they work and the ones that we have implemented over the years and utilized in Franklin County, I believe, are working. Uh, We have a program in the district attorney's office called the Get Back Up program. I am the liaison for that. That is where we don't charge folks. Charged with, you know, and it depends. But with drug offenses, where they're willing to go to treatment immediately to head on the right road, the reason folks would be incarcerated traditionally was to save them from killing themselves. That is a horrible choice that we have to incarcerate somebody from killing themselves. But sometimes that's all—that's your only option because you can't force them to stay at the hospital. You can't force them in the treatment facility. If they won't stay there, sometimes that's the only avenue to keep the person alive. So, that is one program that works very well on the drug and alcohol side. And we've utilized that to have folks go into treatment and not be charged and ultimately have the charges, you know, either even if they have been charged, in my discretion, dismissed uh, if they do that, they follow through with the treatment. And I don't just mean inpatient treatment, I mean, you get out. You do intensive outpatient, you do outpatient, you do the work. That's the biggest problem with getting folks on the right track is it's work. It's hard work. And getting a person who is in the grips of addiction, knowing that they ultimately are ready to do that hard work, that, that's not always easy. They'd rather take the easy way out. So sometimes we, we have people tell us no. All we have is a paraphernalia charge on them. They end up with 12 months probation, you know they're going to go use again. And they're going to be back and there's nothing else that we can do. But we want to try and get them the treatment that they need. Other examples of diversionary programs. It used to be called Jail Diversion. Uh, Now it's called CARE. Great program. Used it it as much as I could to get people with mental health the support that they need. you don't want somebody, because of a mental health issue, sitting at the jail. Uh, sometimes, you know, depending on the level of conduct that they have. But you, we, also, we know, you know, they go to the jail, they get out. What supports do they have? What do they have? And the Jail Diversion Program, Now Care Program, is addressing that. Other diversionary things that we utilize, for example, someone charged with even a domestic violence case, we can. we don't always end up with a conviction. If, the, you know, if you have a married couple and they're like, well, I don't want to blow up my marriage. I mean, we, okay, fine. There's a program called Novus. Complete 26 weeks of it, and maybe we'll consider dismissing this. Show, put in the work. The biggest thing is, will the people, are they amenable to putting in the work that they need to get themselves in a better spot? Because throwing them right back in the same situation is not going to be beneficial for them.
0: Thank you. Moving on to uh, topic six, which I believe is our last topic for the evening. Uh, This is uh, the topic of mental health, another um, topic that's near and dear to everyone's um, heart and, and is in the news. The Franklin County Jail reports the number of inmates identified with a mental illness. In February 2019, the average daily count in the jail was 517. The number of inmates receiving mental health services is well over 60% according to the prison board reports. Yet in the general population, it is estimated that about 18% of adult population will experience a mental illness uh, in a one year period it is clear that people with mental health issues are overrepresented in the jail population. So the first question for Mr. Brink, who would start us off, would you promote the use of risk need assessments to determine the level of care for inmates and the initiation of treatment while incarcerated? And then please explain your answer.
2: I don't believe that I need to promote it. I believe it, it, it I believe it's being done. I know risk need assessment is being done out at the jail all the time. and yeah anything that can get a someone that's incarcerated the appropriate treatment that they need based on an appropriate evaluation I'm in full support of. Um, I would have you know while I worked in the public defender's office, I would have opportunities to be out at the jail, sit in meetings with jail staff and have them talk about different Defendants that uh, out at the jail and the different various treatment options, you know, different treatment and classes that were being recommended for them and what they needed to do. Now, you you know you can bring the horse to water, but you can't make them drink. They get out of it what they decide to put into it. If they even show up to it, uh, that that that's the unfortunate thing. If folks are out there and they don't want the treatment, it's it's not it's not going to help. But Obviously, I'm in full support of um, dealing with the, you know, having the risk need assessment completed to help get people the treatment if they're willing to do it to get them the necessary treatment to help them out because they're going to need it when they ultimately get out of incarceration.
1: I would also agree that I'm in support of uh, having mental health evaluated as soon as possible. Um, we need to have resources put in place so that we can have effective um and efficient responses to that. Um, I don't think we want to be waiting until an inmates released to be assessing or um, providing services. Rather we want them to be released and have a continuation of services as are needed to ensure uh, that they have the best opportunity um, to assimilate back into society and for a permanent return to society.
0: Second question under the mental health topic uh, would you support programs that would case manage individuals in the community in lieu of jail time?
2: I would. I believe that we still are. I think. I think we're currently doing that, or at least it should be utilized by defense attorneys. Uh, if they are not, I utilized it. Um, service Access Management provides care to folks um, with mental health needs that a lot of times gets them just gets their life in order and gets them back on track, gets make sure they attend their appointments. That's one of the biggest drop-offs is they stop attending the appointments that they need to attend. They stop taking medications that they're supposed to be taking. Um, Similarly, like the jail diversion program, now care. Uh, We would have, you know, the case manager, Patty Weinbrenner at the time, would provide updates to me when I worked in the public defender's office to allow me to then utilize that this person's on the right track doing what they're supposed to be doing to number one, hopefully avoid jail time. If, if we could, it wasn't always Sometimes It was less jail time, but we always attempted to avoid all jail time because we knew that reentering after they were in jail was going to be another life event that was going to create a potential failure for them. And I had the opportunity, um, I believe it was the day after New Year's uh, down in Waynesboro when they dropped the Waynesburger. Um, and had the opportunity to see a former client down there, a former client that was a, you know, had mental health issues, um, significant. Um, and under the original version of Jail diversion, they had to suffer from a serious mental illness. So he met that definition and he saw me, he re- immediately recognized me. I went up and talked to him and asked him how things were going. He is still receiving services through Sam, um, and doing very well. He was proud of himself. And I was like, well, I said, I haven't seen you around the courthouse. So I'm assuming things are going well. And he has not been, he said he was proud. He has not been in any trouble for the last five years. Um, I know he's, I believe he's in his probably mid to late thirties now. And he's just like, I'm too old. I just can't do it anymore. But he is also getting the proper supports that he needs, um, Absolutely. If people can get, you know, get them to whatever programs are necessary to make them law abiding and able to, you know, not get themselves in further trouble, uh, I'm in full support of that.
1: Well, again, to the extent that this question is asking me to speak on how I would decide a case, uh, you know, jail time may be the appropriate response, given the facts before me. But yes, uh, as a community member, As an attorney, I do support programs that manage um, individuals within our community. Uh, The paramount concern is that we're ensuring public safety, and if we're doing that, then the goal should be to keep folks out of the system and into services that are truly helping them. And uh, I believe statistics support that people with mental health issues tend to stay longer in jail and they return more frequently. So it's important for us to have programs in place that can address that. I believe Franklin County is one of 37 uh, counties in Pennsylvania that are part of the Stepping Up uh, counties, and and Mr. Brick spoke to that previously. A good example of a program that I see working, I'm a 12-year member of the Keystone Rural Health Board, and uh, one of the most memorable meetings and presentations we had was on our co-responder program. Uh, And uh, the presentation just... Uh, made me realize how important there can be um, having alternatives to um, sending someone to court. Uh, Chief Phillippe was quoted at one point as saying he believes this is no doubt the the best collaboration he has seen in Franklin County. It's keeping our community and and police officers safe. And what it does is it provides immediate and direct intervention Um, at the time law enforcement is called to assist. And and this allows someone to assist someone who has mental illness um, or an intellectual disability. And uh, it acknowledges that some situations are just simply not helped by the standard criminal justice process. Um, And so I think that that's, that's a good example of a program that we should be supporting and we're seeing as being very effective. I agree we can't make decisions based upon costs, but... A byproduct, and the point that I would make is that incarceration is 100% paid by county taxpayer dollars. So to the extent we can divert people, um, we are able to get state and local dollars, especially in the area of mental health, which is this topic. So um, again, not a determining factor, but a positive byproduct.
0: Okay, thank you. Uh, I think that concludes our topic. So we're going to uh, move into closing statements. Each one of our candidates will have four minutes um, for a closing statement. And we will let the person who um, went second for the icebreaker question, which is Mr. Brink, to go first for the closing statements.
2: Well, first off, I again want to thank you for the opportunity to come here and speak to you. I hope it's been... Um, informative for you. Uh, this, you know, the, the process that I'm cur- that we're currently even just the back and forth brings me back to being a public defender because when you're the public defender, and the opening statement goes to the prosecutor first, and then you go second, and then when closing happens, you go first and prosecutor goes second. So uh, it's just kind of like a trial setup here for me. Uh, what I've done uh, countless times. I would just like to say that as a judicial candidate, I understand through dealing with thousands of individuals that have been out at our jail and thousands of individuals that have been charged with crimes, I understand the needs that they have. I understand sometimes the irrational wants that they have. Uh, we've, I've had, unfortunately, I've had people that have wanted to serve jail time versus beyond probation. I remember the first time I heard that I was shocked. I was like, that makes no sense to me, but they just, they just like, I can't make it on probation. So they'd rather sit in jail. I, I've just had the ability to meet with the, meet with individuals and learn from them. Every day you go to court meet individuals it's a learning process you learn something every day and that's what i've attempted to do throughout my career i promise you as a judge for this county and fulton county that i will always as i've answered here everybody comes into my courtroom equal there, no one has a leg up for any reason any other than the older attorneys get to go first because that's what we have happened so uh, when you know, And then you know, the older attorneys know who they are, and they usually uh, get in there and get to go first. But that's the only thing generally in the courtroom that would not be equal, uh, let's put it that way. But it, it's it deserved based on their service to the county and to their clients for a long time. I will treat everybody fairly. I will decide everything based on the law and the facts presented. That is what a judge's job is to do. My job is not to make law. My job is not to attempt to change the law. It's to follow the law. The legislature's job is to change the change the law if they choose to do so. Uh, that's what I pledge that I will do. I will follow that. Um, I, I'm coming to you with my, in Franklin County, going on, I think it's either 14 or 15 years of, 14 years of experience in your criminal justice system, frontline for those 14 in various different positions in both the public defender's office and the district attorney's office. Um, I humbly ask for support uh, from anybody who's willing to support me in my candidacy. Um, I've worked hard over the years, and that's all I attend. That's, that's all someone can do. And that's all I expect of anybody else. I've hired attorneys. I've supervised attorneys. I've trained attorneys. All I ever want is come, work hard, do the best that you can. That's what we ask for people to do. And, you know, in, in the end, if you if you work hard and, you know, do what you're supposed to do, things will turn out all right. So I, again, thank you very much for all of your time. Thank the uh, reentry uh, coalition and just for all of this uh the, this, this ability to come here and talk here tonight.
0: Thank
1: you. Well, I want to, of course, first thank you all for the opportunity to speak tonight on the panel. And I want to thank Ian for his courteous participation. Um, we're both running rigorous campaigns, but it's just nice that we can chat and try to have a good time as we're, we're working through this election. Um, and I want to thank the interest of the audience. I think it's really encouraging to see the number of people who showed up this evening. There's probably a lot of reasons why you could have other things you'd want to do, but I think it shows that you care about this community. I think it shows that you're willing to think outside the box. I think it shows that you have important questions to ask and that you want a better life and a better outcome for this community and the people who live in it. And tonight is not a night for a campaign pitch, but it's, it's a night about community. And the one thing I will say is uh, that's been a constant theme in my life and a constant theme in my candidacy. Uh, since I've been a teenager, I've spent a significant portion uh, of my free time in various endeavors on behalf of this community. Uh, I love it very much, and I hope that that's evident. And I think it's important for our judges to understand the community and care about that, and I'm sure that that applies to everyone in this room. Uh, you know, my background is no secret. It's in, in, it's in the two other divisions of the court, in the civil court and the orphans court. And uh, as county solicitor, I understand budgetary issues that we've talked a bit about tonight. I work on contracts when we need to transfer um, inmates to other prisons so that we don't have an overcrowding situation. I work with the Grants Department when when they're, they're working on diversion programs and grants. Uh, so I understand it from that end, but I haven't had a seat at the table um, for the creation and implementation of a lot of these programs. So I hope you can appreciate that I, I thoughtfully prepared for, for this evening, but had to prepare within what my experience is and provide the most thoughtful prom- uh, responses within my background uh, as a member of this community. Uh, and within the framework that the judicial canons allowed me to respond. And in closing, I'll just say if I'm fortunate enough to be your next judge, I won't be an advocate. Judges can't be advocates. But I will make the pledge to be open-minded. I'll be fair. I'll be respectful to anyone that appears in my courtroom. And I will give thoughtful consideration to all reasonable efforts to improve access to justice, the prison system, and the health and safety of our community. And I thank you all.